We're in Ezekiel tonight, chapter 22. Hear God's holy word. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. You shall say, Thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. You become guilty by the blood which you have shed, defiled by your idols which you have made. Thus you have brought your day near and have come to your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near, those who are far from you will mock you, you of ill repute, full of turmoil. Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. They have treated father and mother lightly within you, the alien they have oppressed in your midst, the fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things, profaned my Sabbaths. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. In you they've eaten at the mountain of shrines. In your midst they've committed acts of lewdness. In you they've uncovered their father's nakedness. In you they've humbled her who was unclean in her menstrual impurity. One has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. In you they've taken bribes to shed blood. You've taken interest in profits. You've injured your neighbor for gain by oppression. You have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. Behold, then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired, and at the bloodshed which is among you. Can your heart endure? Can your hands be strong in the days which I deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will act. I will scatter you among the nations. I will disperse you through the lands. I will consume your uncleanness from you. You will profane yourself in the sight of the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, therefore, behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will lay you there and melt you. I will gather you, blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, you will be melted in the midst of it. You will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing their prey. They have devoured lies. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law. They've profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between holy and profane. They've not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes within her are like wolves, tearing their prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, saying, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression, committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and the needy. They have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I poured out my indignation on them. 
I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. The gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word. This is an overwhelming word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide me, thou my great Jehovah, and you would give me not only the clarity of thought and speech, but even the proper tenor, Lord, to handle such a a weighty word. Help us all, Lord, submit when you have sober things to teach your children, and we we would be obedient sons and daughters, and we would take to heart all of the instruction that you have for us. I thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for saving us from your wrath and visiting us instead with your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. We've mentioned a number of times as we've walked through this book lots of symbolism, at least early on, lots of symbolism as we've been plowing through um, parables, metaphorical language. We've had the metaphor of swords. We have the metaphor of fire here. Uh, I would argue, even though we have some symbolic language, I would argue that the the doctrine of this particular uh, chapter that we're looking at is um, is 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 very simple. Actually, the teaching of this particular chapter is painfully simple, and perhaps I would argue that the person that would come to this and say it isn't painfully sin- sinful, I would think that there is some kind of spiritual bias along the lines of Romans chapter eight, perhaps verse seven, that the the non spiritual man from Corinthians doesn't understand spiritual things. And the non-spiritual person actually hates the things of God, and much like what we looked at this morning. In this particular passage, I can't see, but a, a person who is either blind in their sin or biased in their sin wouldn't see that this clearly is a denunciation of sinners in their sin by a sin-hating God. That's what this passage is about. Chapter 22 is God is saying, I am an infinitely holy God, and I hate sin with, with an infinite hatred. And so we have at the very end, I'm going to pour out my wrath, I'm going to pour out my wrath. This is given to the visible household of faith, the Old Testament church. Wrath is only consigned for unbelievers, chastisement, fatherly discipline for, for believers, but wrath is only for unbelievers. So for us as believers, there's no condemnation, but for unbeliever, even if they're a church member, which is what is going on here, this is wrath. This is judicial. It's not sanctifying. It's not corrective. It's not to the betterment of this particular person. It's actually to satisfy God's justice. So we've been looking at this lesson for what? If we're in chapter 22, for 22 chapters, God has been saying to Israel, I'm a holy God and I hate sin. Here's what sin is. And we've seen because we see God, what are there, 48 chapters in, in uh, Ezekiel? Half the book. Half of the book is God first saying to Israel, I'm holy and I hate sin and I especially hate sin among the whole household of faith. This is that larger catechism question and answer 151. How do we aggravate our sins? And sometimes we think, we, we say, well, we're believers. And I just mentioned Romans 8.1, no condemnation. But we forget God hates sin and God knows all sin. And so God here is speaking to the visible household of faith saying, I especially am incensed with the sin of professing believers who end up, by living in habitual sin, testifying that they are indeed unbelievers. So among professing Christians, 
we aggravate our sins is essentially what the lesson is here. And this is what God tells us. And then with the promise of bringing wrath, this also is, um, we've been, he's been busy telling the people of God regularly, is he is teaching us, God is, through Ezekiel, that someday, a day of his own choosing, God will meet out, M-E-T-E, I think, will meet out his divine punishment on all sinners for living in their sin and not turning to Christ. And the wages of sin, as we know it, it's Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23, Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins must die. And the wages of sin is death. And it's the first death, physical death, which is a harbinger of the second death, which is to be... Death and life are seen in connection with God. Life is a renewed union and and, uh, a close communion with God. And so death is the opposite of that. It is being separated from the comfortable presence of God. Even in hell, which is ultimately the expression of God's wrath, God is in hell. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But it's just as offended justice is there. He's angry there. You're receiving the anger of God. And so God says, I'm holy. Um, I hate sin. I hate sin, especially among the professing people of God, prove themselves to be unbelievers. Um, This is a Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. Almost the entire body of military-aged men that came out of Egypt, God Um, they perished in the wilderness and God swore in his wrath you shall not enter my rest remember wrath unbeliever fatherly chastisement believer so when you read that word wrath you're looking at God's dealing with an unbeliever even if the person says I'm a believer which is what's going on here so God's speaking to Israel and then God promises over and over and over again judgment's coming my judgment is coming and so we exist in the day of grace The day of grace has an end. God has an end to his patience. And the end of his patience for our conversion is the length of our life, physical life. So while a person has physical life, um, there is the possibility of repentance and turning to God in Christ for forgiveness. But when that day is gone, that day is gone. And then you don't meet a God of mercy any longer. You meet a God of justice. And so that's this passage. And I would argue... The fact that God's been so terribly redundant for 22 chapters to the church, to Israel, you would think, well, parents repeat themselves because kids forget, and parents repeat themselves because kids don't want to hear. Um, Not only do they forget because they're just kiddos and they get easily distracted, but because they're biased, sinful little kiddos and they don't want to hear. So this is a lesson that God says, I'm going to teach you this lesson. I'm going to give you another chapter, another chapter, another chapter. It's because, one, sinners in their sin don't believe this. We don't believe it. We don't believe that God is infinitely holy. We don't think he hates sin as much as it is. We don't think that sin is what God says it is. And sinners don't think that judgment will come. The Bible says in, uh, what is it, one of the letters to Timothy. Uh, no, Peter. Uh, Peter. In, in the last days, scoffers is going to say, so where is this coming? And so this is to the people of God who have been told judgment is coming, and they're saying for 20-something chapters, we don't really think so. And then God gives another chapter. He says, actually, I promise it's coming. So that's what we have here. So it's an expression of God's hatred of sin. And we don't often think like that, that God, because we say so many times, 1 John chapter 4, which I love that chapter, verses 1 through 10, God is what? God is love. But here we see that God actually has hatred And his hatred is righteous 
It's holy. It's just. We can't critique him for it. And um, here he hates sin. And it's not sin that we see that's going to be punished um, theoretically. We, we many times have said, you know, the phrase God hates the sin and loves the sinner. To some degree that's true and to some degree it's not true. Sin doesn't occur apart from the moral agent. So God is not going to punish sin in the abstract. He's going to punish the agent that commits the sin. So the entity that receives the wrath of God for sinning against God is not sin in the abstract. It's the person that commits it. So in this case, he has a whole... Ca- what this your, your editor may have said, a list of Israel's sins or something like that. What God says is, I'm holy, I hate sin. Here's a catalog of your sin. And then he goes on in the second chap- half of, the, of the, the chapter and says, here's a catalog of sinners. So here are the things that you're doing that I, I find obnoxious for which I'm going to judge you. And here, are the, here is the catalog of people committing those sins. He'll say, everyone in the city is dross. That's all of the people. And then he walks through all of the particular office bearers, the prophets, the priests, the princes, the kings. You're, you're all committing these things. Catalog of sins, catalog of sinners. And then he says to the sinner committing the sins, I'm going to bring my sword, my fire, my wrath, my judgment on you. So I would add that as a gentle corrective when we say God loves the sinner and hates the sin. For us in Jesus, that's true, but we're not seen as sinners anymore. We're seen as saints. And God does so love the world, he sends his only begotten son. That is true. But I wouldn't want to press that idea so much because then it leaves the person living in their sin. Well, I guess I'm okay. He loves me. He just hates what I do. Beloved, that's not true. That's not biblical. And it leaves people with a false sense of security. So the Bible teaches that God hates sin because he's so holy. It's always helpful. We've probably done it ad nauseum. When he says you're the bloody city, this is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of peace, and there's a play on words. And God elsewhere in the Bible also uses play on words. Um, um, uh, Bethel is the house of God. Beth Aven is the house of evil. So he'll say, you're no longer Bethel, the house of God. You're Beth Aven, the house of evil. And it's the city of peace. You're no longer the city of peace. You're the city of blood. You're the city of war. And um, clearly denouncing sin. It's always helpful to start with a definition. It's always helpful to start with God's definition of something. Um, the definition of sin, we're told in 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 4, 1 through 8, all sin is lawlessness. So it's a breach of the law of God. In the Old Testament, you have three forms of law judicial, dealing with Israel specifically, and then you have ceremonial, depicting Jesus, and then you have the moral law. And um, breaking the moral law, particularly, is seen in omission and commission. They're doing both. So omission is not doing what God says do. Commission is doing what God forbids to do. We're required to love people, and when we don't love them, that's breaking the law. God says, reverence your father and your mother, and they're not reverencing them. So you could say, well, I'm not positively doing evil to my, to my mother and father. No, but you, you're not reverencing your father and your mother, and so that's breaking of the law. And God lists it here. The Apostle Paul says this as regards to the Ten Commandments being a summary of the moral law and showing us what God approves or disapproves. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have no, known sin except through the law. 
I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. So the moral law of God, summarizing the Ten Commandments, is that standard by which God says, this is right, this is wrong. This is what a sin is. This is what it means to live righteously. So it's the moral law. So any lack of obedience or conformity to the moral law is what sin is. And I know it's a basic definition. We've given it many times. It's helpful for us to hear that. We live in an anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-law culture. Even in the church, people think, well, you don't really, we don't really need the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you really do need the Ten Commandments. Not as a covenant of works unto salvation. That's been lost forever by Adam. Uh, but we do need, it's a standard of what's right and wrong. It shows us what is approved and, and not approved. It acts as a tutor to drive us to Jesus. And I would argue if you go wrong on the law, you go wrong on the gospel. So God here is bringing the law of God to his people. And the church needs to hear the law. And is it nicer to preach the gospel? At the very end, he says, I don't have a mediator. I don't have an umpire. I don't have a go-between. He's referencing, ultimately has to send in Christ. It's very, very veiled. We see some of the chapters are more expressed, but this one's very veiled as far as the, the grace and the mercy. But God here is bringing the law. And the reason he's bringing the law is because the people are so, so stubborn in their sins. Here's another mistake that we sometimes do. Sometimes people are living in their sin, perhaps even a professing church member. And we say, well, you know, all of your sins are thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. If they're true believers, that's true. But it's not the time to, to whisper sweet nothings in their ear. If a man's getting ready to cheat on his wife, it might be a good idea to tell him that God will not hold that man guiltless. God is going to stand in... in and, and play the party uh, to, to the offended wife. So it might be helpful to use the law of God to drive him off his sin. And um, I, the, the, the Lord is us, using that here um, with that. So we've said before, God says again, it's helpful for us to have God's view on sin in the church because as I said, we are the, we're the frog in the pot. We live in a cultural context God is the one that determines to put us in this cultural context. Our culture has a very wrong view on sin. Very, very wrong view on sin. Um, you can't watch a, you. I don't know when the last time I went to a movie is. My wife and I, many years ago, many, many years ago, we had a practice. If we went to a movie and we saw any like sexual dirtiness or anything, we would get up and leave. If they started cursing, we would get up and leave. If they said God's name in vain, we would get up and leave. <laughs> Like, you can't make it through the first 10 minutes of them showing you anything. And I just lost 100 bucks for two tickets or whatever they cost. And so that's our country. And, um, and when we look and we think, well, is it, do we really need to bore down on God's view of sin? I, I would argue yes. Even in professing Christian churches, if you're a mom and a dad, and as your kids grow up, they're in the culture, even though we homeschooled our kids and we kept them from a great many things. You can't keep them from everything. And we're in a cultural context. They're going to hear, well, is it really that bad? Is it really that bad for a boy to turn himself into a girl, which is impossible, and vice versa? Is that really that bad? Is it really that bad for a boy to marry a boy or a girl to marry? Is it really that bad? And you're going to think, well, my kids will never say that to, to me. We're in the OPC. It doesn't matter. Yes, they will. We're in a cultural context. And so the church needs to be told regularly, this is what God says is sin. This is what God says is the wages of sin. Um, we need to hear it. And so God gives it to his, 
people. And if you look at your, look kind of at chapter 22, look at verse 1. Um, uh, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 2, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 12, um, thus declares the Lord God. I have verse 1, verse 12, verse 17, verse 19, verse 23, verse 28, verse 31. Essentially, seven times God says, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. We would do well every time we picked up the Bible. I don't do this. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul said that the man who is the most faithful to the Bible opens himself up to the charge of being a hypocrite because he doesn't do what he's preaching. He preaches a higher standard than what he actually pulls off. That's true. If a man is faithful to the Bible, and I say, every single time we come to this book, we should look at this seven times. Thus says the Lord. Thus, we should almost hold the Bible with trembling hands. I think that's true. That's why God says it seven times. I hate sin. I'm holy. I'm going to judge sin. And I especially hate sin in the church. Seven times. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. And so, yes, we, we would benefit from a passage like this more. We would, benef- we would benefit from John 3.16 more if we held it, the Bible in our hands and looked at the words with trembling hands and taking our shoes off if we're, as if we're on holy ground in the immediate presence of God, because we are. I don't do that. I would benefit. I don't do it as much as I should. We should come to a passage like this and say, this isn't just some dry, dusty you know, Ezekiel, well, I don't know. God says this. We're in the presence of God saying this. Thus says the Lord. You're no longer the city of peace. You're the city of blood. What would we do if Christ were to come into the church and say something like that? You're no longer a people of peace. You're a people of war. You're no longer a holy, chaste bride. You're an unchaste, unclean adulteress. And we were to see Christ say that to us. Our response to the word would be markedly different. So the denouncer of sin, the judger of sin, is God himself. He's using the the ministry of Ezekiel. I feel bad for Ezekiel. I know maybe I feel extra bad for Ezekiel. I feel bad for Ezekiel. I feel bad for Isaiah, for Jeremiah. This is part of the ministry of the word. I mentioned this morning, the minister's main desire should be to bring glory to God. The way he brings glory to God is he's as faithful to this book as you can be. And for us as Christians, we say that our chief end of man, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One of the ways that we glorify God is we believe and we obey as faithfully, as close to the word of God as we can get. So all of the little views that we hold that are contrary to the word, we repent of them and change our views. All of the practices that we have which are contrary to the word of God, we repent of them and we reform our lives. We try to be as faithful as we can be. And it's a painful process. Um, And it's a painful thing to hear something that we want. The judge says, I don't want that. And something that we're engaged in um, for God to make threats against it. But God is the one who denounces God is the one who judges and I mentioned this morning that one of the ways that we see whether in Christ or out of Christ or growing in Christ likeness is the comparison of our views on anything as regards to God's views on what he reveals in his word 
So the closer we get to God's views, then we're walking with the Lord. Um, the further apart our views are, then clearly we're walking contrary to the Lord. Um, so God denounces the sins. It's him doing it. It's a terrifying chapter. Um, but I, I will say this. This is written before the judgment has come. I see even in this um, a measure of grace and mercy. When the Bible speaks with hard language against sin, even the wrath business, even the judgment is coming, I hate this sin, you're, this, you're living in blood, you're, you have a, hatred in your heart, you're committing murder, you're committing sexual immorality, and here's what's coming next for those things. Don't try to blunt the edge of that for yourself or for the people that you love. Um, the benefit is in receiving the word, even hard words. Many of us have had this occasion. When we were coming up, maybe we had a mom or a dad or some counselor, some person we respected. We were, we were, we were, doing, we were living contrary to the way that we should live. And someone that loved us told us hard things about ourselves. Like, this is you. And this is wrong. And you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt other people. And if you persist in this, it's going to reveal that you're an unbeliever and these are the things that are going to happen. They told us hard things. And we believed them. And we were, we were made better by it. So it's not kind to tell someone living in their sin that's under the potential judgment of God, it's okay. It's okay. Committing murder is okay. I, I know I've spoken out against abortion a number of times, just briefly. Um, I've been looking at it a lot lately. I, I confess I, I don't think about it a lot, but I have a lot lately. To me, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. It's horrific. Dismembering a little baby and then potentially selling body parts. It's just horrific. I, I always yell back at the, the computer, this is Mangala. This is like Mangala. This is, is horrific. It's not good to say to someone, you know what, that, 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 that's okay. That's not murder. Or someone engaging in sexual immorality, which is what's going on in the in the professing people. There's a there's a holiness code section in the Bible, Leviticus 18 through 20, 18, 19, 20, and Leviticus 25. Don't commit uncleanness with this one, don't commit uncleanness. If you look at those lists, these are people not to have any kind of conjugal relations with. Not this one, 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 not this one. For like five chapters. Why would God have to do that? Because this is what natural man, unconverted man in the church is doing. Can I, her, her, him, it, no, 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 no. It's not good to tell even a professing Christian, because this is the visible church, who's living in these things. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, buttercup. No condemnation in Jesus. Apostle Paul says, don't deceive yourself. Liars, fornicators, homosexual offenders. So it's better to hear the hard things when there's time to repent, believe, and reform than wait till it's too late. And then even for the true believer. You say, well, I am a true believer, but I'm struggling with the, 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 the he says you're a bunch, you're a murderous city. Are they committing murder, murder? Well, perhaps they are committing murder, murder. But what's the source of murder, murder? Hatred. Hatred. 
How many Christian, professing Christians do you know say, who, I've heard people say this, I will never forgive that person. I will never, ever, ever forgive that person. You need to read John, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Father, f- forgive us as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus ends that little section in 14 and 15 in John, Matthew 6. If you don't forgive other people, God doesn't forgive you. So unforgiveness is a sign of you're not received their forgiveness. That's hatred. That's hatred. And that's the source of murders. Read James 4, 1 through, you, you fight and murder. Well, it's, they're, they're filled with hatred. It's never a good idea to just gloss over sin. Let the law of God do the law of God's work. Let the Holy Spirit work on the person, work on you. If you find yourself, well, I'm committing sexual uncleanness. I have a heart of hate. I'm, I'm lusting for money. And notice he throws in there, you're, this is what you're like. You're, 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 you have heart hatred. You're committing murder. Uh, you, you, there's sexual uncleanness. And then he says there's usury. You're greedy for gain. How many guys think, oh, I can't go to church because I've got to work. I can't do this because of my pile. God is your, the mammon is your money. You're serving mammon. And you, you can't have two masters. And God says for this person in the church, you're not getting grace, you're getting justice if you live in this. And it's always better to let the law of God, as I say, before it's too late. It's too late after you die. Um, it's too late after you die. J.C. Rouse says most people die the way that they live. We put everybody that dies in heaven, but that's just us. I think J.C. Rouse is exactly right. As you live, you're going to die. If you're a Jesus hater and a sin lover, and that's how you live, that's how you're going to die. I know there's the guy on the cross, and J.C. Rowell says he's there, so we wouldn't despair, but there's only one of them so that we wouldn't be presumptuous. And so it's always better to let the law of God do its work to drive us to the gospel of God while it's called today. So this is God's denunciation. Um, He calls the city of Jerusalem uh, the city of blood. This This is helpful for us. The city of Jerusalem stands for the people of God. When we look at uh, Revelation chapter 19, 21, I forget, but it's 19 certainly. The new Jerusalem is the glorified church coming down out of heaven. So it represents the people of God. The people of God, and we miss this too. Not only do we see that in the church, not only do we miss that God hates sin because he's so holy. We miss the fact that professing believers are to be radically holy. As Christians, we are to be radically holy. Our bodies are holy to the Lord. Our minds are holy to the Lord. Think of the Ten Commandments. The holiness, of the, the sanctity of God, the sanctity of his name, the sanctity of his worship, the sanctity of his day, the sanctity of, of uh, honor father and mother, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of authority, um, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder, the sanctity of life, uh, the Seventh Commandment, um, thou shalt not commit adultery, the sanctity of sexual relationships, the sanctity of the, the, the conjugal relationship, the sanctity of property. Everything is the holiness, the holiness, the holiness. This is another thing that the Old Testament church and the New Testament church didn't get and they didn't believe. Without practical holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. So as Christians, we we should strive to be radically holy in what we think and what we say. Now, we all fall short, but that's why we have Christ as our Savior. But we can't sit back on our laurels and say, well, well, we can just be half a worldling and go to heaven. That's not true. Be ye holy. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's not a good sign to live in habitual sin 
because we're to, we're to live in habitual holiness. And God is coming to an entity, to a people that are to be radically holy. And he says, you're radically unholy. I sometimes say, because I, I guess I get a little exasperated, and I get, I get exasperated with myself. I hear regularly, oh, such and so, such and so Christian family member, such and so Christian friend. And I, I almost, it's almost, I suppose it's a little jaundice. I'll say something like this. Oh, this is a Bibleless, prayerless, churchless, worshipless, porn-watching, booze-drinking, pot-smoking Christian. And, oh boy, someone's a little, someone's a little jaundiced. I'm pretty close on that one. That's this. That's this. Let's see if I qualify for medical marijuana while I'm getting my whiskey, sleeping with my girlfriend, divorcing my, my wife. And I'm, by the way, I'm reformed. Um, God comes and has a different opinion of it. And he, he lists the catalog of sins. We've touched on a few of them, the murder and the so on. Um, I mentioned the, the hatred. This is a Matthew chapter 5. This is, this is, um, this is convicting. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery um, hell. God says, everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. Is a murderer. And so, is actual hand murder occurring in Jerusalem? I have no doubt. But I think the larger murder that he's denouncing is the James 4, 1 through 10. You're quarreling, you're fighting, you're hating one another. Um, And it's not a small thing. We're called to love one another, and by love it shows that we're brothers. But when Christians hate other Christians, like hate, hate. I know it's kind of like, I love you in the Lord, but I just grimace when I see you. I hate you so bad. And we all do that. I love you in the Lord. <laughs> no, that's a bad, that is a very bad sign. If we're known by our love, we're actually known by our hatred too. That shows that we're not in the Lord. If we lived in this habitually, that's what's going on. And it, another sin, they commit idolatry. The first is, uh, what is it, the sixth commandment? They're breaking the sixth commandment. And then they're committing idolatry. They break the first four commandments. Um, they're committing actual idolatry with, with figurines. And then Ephesians chapter 5, or there's a chapter in, chapter, uh, in the book of Colossians. If you live in as an, as an idolater, if you have idols and you're worshiping the idol, God has a word for you, which is a, a word. And then it says you're demeaning mother and father. There's a place in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 then in the last days, you'll see people being wicked to their mothers and fathers, killing mothers and fathers, dishonoring mothers and fathers, not reverencing mothers and fathers. And you think, wow, you have murdering people, sexual immorality, and then you're disrespectful to mom and dad. Like, really, really big and like a joke. Who isn't disrespectful to mom and dad? Well, the fifth commandment is the fifth commandment. The way we reverence our father and mother is a reflection 
of our love and obedience to the Lord God. You say, well, my mom and dad don't deserve respect. Well, they do because God says give it to them. If they don't live in a respectful manner, then you need to respect them and pray for them because God says to. And it, it, it's, a, it's the sanctity of the family. It's the sanctity of mother and father, the sanctity of filial authority. We want it as mothers and fathers, even though we don't always live respectful lives. And it's part of the commandment of God. And the people of God are known by their reverence for their mother and their father. Um, it's a great testimony. When you see people gather around, even though some of us have had parents with some large challenges, um, when we cover over their challenges with a cloak of love, it is pleasing to God. And they demean their father and their mother. Now this certainly, what, what is it like you can divorce your mother and your father, all these kind of things? It's just a, a state of rebellion. They've oppressed the alien, orphans and widows. Um, this God directly says, I'm going to stand up for the orphan and the widow. They're breaking God's Sabbath, Sabbath days. I would argue this is the feast days. They're sexually immoral. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, they're greedy for money. This is like America. <laughs> this, this is like America. And then since we're the church in America, the culture, the American culture gets into um, the church. And God has a word against it. And then he lists the class of sinners and I'm not going to walk through each and every class, but essentially he says it's everybody. He says the whole, the bulk of the people. And it's not, it's quantitatively, it's not everyone including, because that would include uh, Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's a godly man. Jeremiah's in this context. He's a godly man. Daniel's in this context. He's a godly man. So it's not each and every person. But when he says the whole city is a, a bunch of dross, God is going to bring his judgment, and the judgment holds two forms, scattering off to Babylonian captivity, and then he's going to gather some. So there's two things. Scattering is the covenant curse, and then when he, when he gathers them together, it's for the purpose of using it as, as, as a, uh, a furnace. Sometimes the furnace is used, the language is used as a refiner's fire to make them better. That's not this passage. They're not the silver. They're the dross. So he's not bringing the fire to purify them. He's bringing the fire to, to destroy them. And he, he starts, he says, all the people of this. And then he goes from, what is it? Prophet, the priests, the princes, the kings, all of the leaders are engaged in all of these things. God here, says, here's all the obnoxious sin. Here are all the obnoxious sinners. And then he says at the very end, I looked for someone to stand in the gap. You remember when Moses, the people of God were living, well, they were making the golden calf. And God said, I'm going to destroy them. Get away from them. And Moses will run before God and say, oh, God, please don't. It's a, it's a picture of what Christ does. He is that intercessor, that mediator between God and man. And God looks at his people, this visible household of faith. All he sees is corruption from top to bottom. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to send you off to captivity, and I'm going to burn the rest of you earlier in Ezekiel, maybe chapter 11, he uses that awful picture of, uh, and this is the gathering part, of the city being a pot and the people being the meat in the pot. And God says, I'm going to keep you in this pot and you're going to be part of the siege. And when Babylon comes, they're going to lock you up into the city and they're going to set it on fire. And that's what you deserve. And he says at the end, but I looked for someone and I couldn't find them. Again and again and again, Yes, this is a warning to the unbelievers in the church. This 
to the believer, by nature, this is what we are. We are these people by nature. So for the unbeliever in the church, they're going to receive wrath for these things. For the believer in the church, these are the things that we've been forgiven of. There's not a person in this church that hasn't hated someone. There's not one person here that has not hated another human being. There's not one person here that has not loved the person that they were required to love. No one here has perfectly reverenced their father and their mother as unto the Lord. No one. We've all fallen short of this. Many of us here have failed in the cleanness aspect, sexually unclean, and we have been forgiven of that. Um, Greedy for gain, abusive of widows and orphans, taking advantage of weaker people. We're, we're, We're guilty. So God is going to exact justice on the unbeliever. But when we look at this and think, well, what good can this be for us? This is what we're saved from. But this is what we're due. But this is what we're saved from. And the only help for people in this that find themselves, well, I'm this sinner. The only help is that God would find this man to stand in the gap, to be the intercessor. And he looks around. He says, I don't see anybody here. Therefore, from heaven, he sends his son. And Christ is the one. And this is the point, one of the points I wanted to get at this morning, and I want to end with this. These are the people that Jesus saves. There will be people here that will receive only justice, strict justice, the wrath. But God, remember he says, I'm going to scatter some. You think, well, it's horrible to be sent off to Babylon to be a slave. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's not horrible to be sent off to Babylon as a slave. Why? Because I'm keeping you alive. I'm going to put the people in a pot in in Jerusalem, those who stay. I have a whole remnant. I'm going to keep them alive in slavery, and then I'm going to bring them back. God is the one that provides that Messiah, that mediator, that umpire, the one that stands between him and us. And he pleads our case to him. He provides his blood for all of the things that we deserve. Beloved, these chapters as weighty and sober as they are, they show us the holiness of God, his hatred against sin, what we are by nature and what we are now by grace because of the mercy of God. Uh, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.